Thank you, praise team, for leading us in our singing this morning. We've had some question about the reception, the welcome reception for the Spurditos and the Flints this evening at four o'clock in the parlor. We are still doing it. We hope that there is at least one person from the Flint family who will be here, but if not, they'll miss out on the cake, but we'll be sure to forward along to the cards that you would meant to give them, and, and we certainly want to welcome the Spurditos. So, uh, welcome reception, four o'clock tonight in the parlor. We hope that you will uh, come, make it, and bless these families as they have joined our church staff. Please turn your Bibles with me to Acts in chapter 25, if you will. Acts in chapter 25. Uh, as we get started, I just want to cover a few things that are coming up, some opportunities to engage in some local outreach here in our church. First, as a staff, we have begun to follow up with many, many families who joined us from Wolfland Elementary and also uh, just from people that you invited to our Maxwell's Pumpkin Farm Outreach. We're excited about what God could do through that, and we want to encourage you that if you invited someone, if you gave a ticket to a family, that you would actually follow up with them as well, that you would invite that family to come just to be part of what we're doing here and uh, what's taking place. Second, this year our church will not be involved with the angel tree ministry. This is something we've done for several years. This year we're actually moving to a, local, a different local ministry, a Mission Amarillo. Mission Amarillo is a ministry that's been around here for a long time and we are joining with them this year to host a shoe drive. So uh, every year they have children in schools who are in need of shoes and this is a way to provide one of the ministry folks that they do. So we will be hosting a, um, an angel tree, but it will have shoes on it, I think, and you'll be able to come pick that up. You'll have a size and male or female and all that kind of information. Next week we'll have that out. There'll be more information for you next week about what's needed and how to bring it back, but we wanna just bless these families here locally. And then lastly, we have put information out about our Thanksgiving in-gathering in our Bible fellowship group classes, as well as you may have seen, there may be some left out there on the little tables as you enter into the sanctuary. Uh, for years, our church, as a deacon-led ministry, has participated in a Thanksgiving in-gathering where uh, you bring non-perishable food items. Our deacons put all those together in a basket. Uh, the church purchases turkeys or hams, and then we take all of that. We deliver it to families who are needy at Thanksgiving. So those families could be people in our church. It could be families that you are connected with in the community. It could be families that we serve through other various ministries, uh, local ministries that we are connected to. And then this year, we're also partnering with Wolfland to help provide meals for families who are who might be struggling there as well. So uh, you can help in a couple different ways with this ministry. One is that you can pick up one of those half sheets of paper either out there on those tables or maybe in your Bible fellowship group and you can write the name of a family down that would be uh, blessed by a meal like this. And then we would take over from there. Our deacon ministry would contact them. And, and then the second way you can help through this is on November 20th, and you're going to hear more about this, I know. On November 20th, bring food items, non-perishable food items that would complement a Thanksgiving meal. Bring those with you into the service and keep your bag with you. And then during that service, we will have an opportunity for you to come forward and to present that offering uh, in such a way where we're saying we as a church together want to bless families in this neighborhood 
in that kind of way. Friends, it is a great thing to be part of a church that is outwardly focused, wanting to love people in Jesus' name, wanting to speak and live the gospel. I am grateful to be part of this church family. Now, as we continue in our study of Acts today, we're going to see Paul in a familiar setting. He's going to be standing trial in Caesarea, which he has already done. He's already been standing trial. But we're going to see that while there is a lot that will be the same, some things are about to change. Soon he will be on the move to Caesar. He will go. So if you'll stand with me, we're going to read the first 12 verses of Acts 25. We stand as we honor the reading of God's word, his perfect word, and we read together here Acts 25 verses 1 through 12. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, that is the governor Festus, asking a favor against Paul that he would summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. And he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days and he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried, to the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Will you pray with me? Lord, we have read your word, and we have read it anticipating that you will speak to us. So God, in, in your grace, in your kindness, may your spirit speak to us this morning. And may we be changed and transformed because of the power of your word. For your glory, Lord, for our good in Christ we pray, amen, and you may be seated. Well, we left off, left off in Acts 24 with a changing of the governorship, right? After two years that Paul was there in Caesarea, after standing trial before Felix and the Jews at that point, the Jewish leadership at that point, a shift has been made. Felix has been outed as the governor, and now Festus is the new governor. And Festus came from a very well-connected Roman family, uh, in the, in a family in the Roman Empire. He, he had an in into this role, into this location, and one of the first acts as governor of Festus was to go to meet with, connect with the Jewish leadership 
there in Jerusalem. And as you know, the Romans ruled the area. They were the oppressors. They were the ones who held control of all of this. But it was important for them to have a good working relationship with the Jews because they wanted peace. They didn't want uprising. So the governor would go there and he would pay his dues at some level to the Jewish leadership. By the way, the Romans did allow the Jewish leadership to have some self-rule, even though it was under the Roman hand. But they wanted good relationship. They wanted good connection because they wanted peace. And right off the start, we're reminded that enemies of the cross are persistent. The enemies of the cross are persistent. Right? Two years have passed since Tertullus argued before Felix, before the Jewish leadership hired this lawyer or this orator to go and to speak the case against Paul before Felix. And they didn't get the outcome that they wanted, right? They wanted Paul to be dead, but Felix said, I'm just going to keep him in prison and we'll deal with this later. And we don't actually have record of the Jewish leadership continuing to go before Felix and, and try, to, try to seek his death on a continual basis. We just know he was there for about two years in the jail with the freedom for some of his friends to come and to meet with him and to talk to him and to bring him some aid. But now there's a new governor and the Jews are not going to miss their opportunity to get in their word to try to make their will to be done. That's what verse 3 is all about, right? They have this favor to ask of Festus. They want Festus to bring Paul, the one that they don't like, down to Jerusalem so he could be tried there. But really what's going on is that there is a plot, another plot against Paul and they plan to ambush him and to kill him. Now, you'll remember in, in chapter 23, this is actually what brought Paul up to Caesarea the first time. Uh, there was a plot to kill Paul. Forty people had taken this oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. And uh, Paul finds out about it because of his nephew. They go tell the Roman tribune at the time, and then he is sent up to Caesarea. Now, let's be frank. If those people were true to their vow, they probably weren't around to be part of this ambush because who's going to make it for two years without eating or drinking? However, it's very clear that they probably weren't true to their vow and they probably enjoyed a meal the day that Paul was brought up there. So maybe some of those same people were involved with this plot as well. Either way, Festus did not comply. And while he was willing to take steps towards good relationship with the Jewish leadership there, he was also willing to put his foot down and to assert his authority as we see in verse 4 and 5. They look, he's a, our prisoner. We're going to deal with him there. And if you want to come up and make charges, then come on up and we'll, we'll deal with it there. But here's the question for you. Does it surprise you? Does it surprise you that there was still so much disdain and vitriol for Paul after two years. I mean, think about it. Paul was in prison. He was basically off the grid. He was off the radar. It wasn't like he was out there evangelizing. It wasn't like he was out there causing trouble in their eyes, right? Well, why were they so concerned even still? Why did they want him dead even still? Well, to the church at Philippi, Paul would write to beware of those who are enemies of the cross. He would warn them, beware of the enemies of the cross, right? And he adds that their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their mindset on earthly things. Friends, the Jewish leadership, the religious leaders of the Jews were enemies of the cross. 
They were driven by an insatiable desire to destroy any recollection of Jesus and to take care of anyone who was a follower of Jesus. And they didn't recognize their own shame. They were full of shame, but they thought that they were living for God. They thought that they were doing the will of God. They were so deceived. And they were working against what the Lord willed. They were enemies of the cross. Friends, when someone's God is their belly, this is a graphic way of saying they are driven by their appetites. They're driven by their appetites. And we understand that this is a never-ending pursuit, right? The appetite is never fully satisfied, ever. How many times have you sat down for a meal and you get done, you say, oh, I'm so full, I couldn't eat for a week. And then what happens four hours later? Especially if there's ice cream in the house, right? Like, you eat because you're not fully satisfied. For a moment, you're appeased, but it never ends. We always got to keep filling and filling and filling. And the same is true here. As they hated Christ, as they hated the followers of Christ, they couldn't find fulfillment until they had pursued every means possible. They would never be satisfied because Christ is Lord. So friends, it shouldn't surprise us that the Jewish leadership was seeking to Uh, kill Paul, seeking his demise. Think about it this way. There is a place between South Korea and North Korea called the demilitarized zone, right? Why do we have troops there? Why are there troops there? Because it's an ever-present danger. It's an ever-present danger. And as we live this life, we have to understand that enemies of the cross are persistent. They don't go away. Now, friends, for the Jews, Jesus was a present threat. They may have denied that he was living, but they understood the change that was going on all over the world because of the impact of Jesus. This is why more Jews went to Caesarea to seek to kill Paul. They made their accusations, but they couldn't prove their accusations. Now for us, friends, we'll be honest, it's likely not the Jews who are out to get us. It's not. That doesn't mean there are not enemies of the cross and that we don't live in a world that opposes Christ. We do. Right? And the enemies of the cross come in every sphere of our society. It comes in academia, and it comes in media, and it comes in politics, and it comes in civil servants, and it comes with entertainment, it comes with government officials. And friends, sometimes the opportunity comes from coworkers or friends or classmates or family even, or neighbors. And sometimes the opposition is direct, and it's intentional, and you feel it, right? Because it's aimed right at you. But sometimes it's indirect. And sometimes it's not even personal. It's just the world we live in that is so opposed to truth and so opposed to righteousness. This is where we are. And unfortunately, while they wouldn't fall into the category of enemies of the cross, sometimes opposition comes from people that we would least expect it. Even from brothers and sisters in Christ who are not walking with the Spirit but who are pursuing their own agendas and own desires and their own wills. That is a sad thing that sometimes in our flesh, we as followers of Christ can even play into the enemy's hands, seeking even to undo what God is up to in our lives, right? When we live according to the flesh, we buy into the worldly philosophies that rule our day, 
we go off course and we can even be guilty of opposing God's will. So in light of the persistence of the enemies of the cross, what do we do? What do we do? We recognize there are enemies of the cross. What do we do? Well, first, we have to remain vigilant. The apostle Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 5 to to be sober-minded and watchful. Be sober-minded and watchful. Recognize that there is an enemy, that there is someone who is trying to trip us up, trying to make shipwreck of our faith, trying to destroy our witness, trying to destroy our faith. Peter tells us to resist the devil. And in this context, it's, it's moving towards Christ. It's, it's, it's not capitulating in the face of the pressures of the world that are brought on by suffering and trial and by those who would aim their darts at you. This is seeking to live fully for God, but knowing that there is an enemy and not losing heart. And friends, it's also understanding that sometimes we can be our own worst enemies in that we allow things into our lives that should not be in our lives. We allow temptation into our lives. We allow worldliness into our lives that ought not have a place in our lives. And we give Satan then a foothold in that sense, complying even with what ought not be true in our lives. Friends, we need to continue to walk faithfully with God. Continue to trust that even in the midst of trials, he's with us and that he has our good in mind and that we are called not to compromise, not throw in the towel, but to pursue him with all that we are. So, so we, we remain vigilant right? Sober-minded and watchful. But we also, because the enemies are so persistent, we have to put on the armor of God. This is what the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6, right? Paul tells us there's an ever-present spiritual battle that's raging all around us and that the forces of darkness are working to undo us. So it's only then by believing the gospel, by putting on the armor of God, by believing the promises of God that we will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. And this means that we must be committed to prayer, right? Asking God to keep us, to protect us. And not just for a bunker mentality, not just for a mentality that says, okay, I'm going to hide over here and I'm going to, I'm going to close in with just my Christian friends and I'm going to keep the world on the outside and, and not engage with it at all because the world's bad. And, and if I have any engagement, then no, it's safer just to hide over here. No, but that's not the picture. The picture is that we, because we are in the world, that we would engage the world with truth. We're not to be of the world, right? The world's not to get in us, but we are already in the world, so we're to go with the gospel, and we're to seek God's grace to protect us even in the midst of struggles. We're to pray that we would have this purpose of gospel advancement, and that's what we see with Paul, right? He wasn't just concerned about preserving his own life. In fact, as we read through the book of Acts, it doesn't ever seem like he's concerned with preserving his own life. He's wanting the gospel to go forward and he's a tool that God will use to whatever means he chooses to do so. We even see that here, friends. The second thing we see from this passage is the necessity of pursuing God's plan. 
the necessity of pursuing God's plan. So hearing the accusations of the Jews, Paul speaks up, and what does he do? He denies them. He says, look, I've done nothing against the laws of the Jews. I've done nothing against the temple. I've done nothing against Caesar. This, none of this is true. They can't prove anything. In fact, in verse eight, uh, the, Luke begins by saying that Paul argues his defense. Now, some commentators would say, well, you know, Paul, he shouldn't have argued his defense. He shouldn't have tried to defend himself. Jesus said, just, you know, he, Jesus didn't defend himself. When he stood trial, he was just silent. And he just entrusted himself, as Peter writes, to the Father who judges justly. Well, it's true. So they say, well, Paul shouldn't have defended himself here. But let's just kind of think about context because context is really important anytime we try to understand Scripture. When we think of Jesus, Jesus his life as Messiah was fulfilling prophecy. And his purpose as he stood trial before uh, the Jewish leadership wasn't to get off the hook, it wasn't to get out of jail card, it was to go to the cross to pay for our sin, right? That's why Jesus came, he came for this purpose, he came for this hour that he might die on a cross to pay for the sin of the world. That's what he says. That's what the word of God says. So Jesus wasn't defending himself to get out. Jesus was completely innocent. He could have defended himself. He could have got freed, but that wasn't according to the will of God. So why did Paul? Well, Paul's purpose was to defend his witness. He wasn't guilty. He, he wanted not to have these false charges following him, but it's even more than that. Because as we've read in the past several chapters of Acts, there was this desire that Paul understood that God's will was moving him to Rome. I must go to Rome. And then even after a beating, Jesus shows up. And do you remember what Jesus tells Paul? Take comfort. Just as you have testified about the facts about me and the resurrection elsewhere, you will do so in Rome. What is Paul doing he is appealing to Caesar in light of all the accusations and chaos because he is seeking to move God's will along. He's seeking to pursue God's plan. Festus asked Paul if he would like to be tried in Rome, but Paul wants nothing to or be, be tried in Jerusalem, but Paul wants nothing to do with that, and then he appeals to Caesar. Now, there are a lot of reasons why people say Paul appealed to Caesar. They might say that Paul appealed to Caesar because he didn't trust the Jewish leadership to give him a fair trial. Well, that should be obvious, right? Some would say that he appealed to Caesar because he wasn't even trusting Festus at this time. Well, could have been. We don't know for sure. Could have been that, some would say, it could have been that Paul was just trying to make it so that uh, Rome would be accepting, officially recognize Christianity, and that would be okay upon the whole, the whole area, and it would give him freedom from the Jewish leadership. Maybe, you know, all those things. But what is clear is that Paul knew that his calling was to go and to proclaim Christ in Rome, and he was moving that along. Commentary Commentator Daryl Bach suggests that Paul's greater concern was taking the gospel to Rome and his own actions, that is appealing to Caesar, helped to move God's plan forward. So let's just stop there for a minute. In our own lives, when we are unsure of God's will in any situation, we need to walk carefully, prayerfully, seeking counsel and wisdom. 
We shouldn't just take steps forward as if we know everything right away, as if we're without, you know, any concern, as though we have a, a, you know, we know what God's will is perfectly. Where there are areas that are, are gray or clouded or there are areas that are just unknown in our lives, we have to be careful as we move forward. Yeah, move forward, but be careful and seek wisdom and be prayerful about that. Don't assume that your way is the best way. That can get you in a lot of trouble. Think about Abraham. God appears to Abram and calls him to himself and says, go to this place. And then he, eventually he's going to promise him a child in his own age. And this would be a child of promise. And this would be the child through whom God would bless Abraham and give him uh, a nation, right? Well, things aren't going along for Abraham very well, or he doesn't think they are at least. And he thinks, wait a minute, my wife, she's old. She can't even conceive anymore. And what are we going to do? Oh, I have an idea, Abraham. And his Sarai, his wife said, okay, let's... Let's go through the maidservant. Let's bring a child into the picture through another woman. Well, that wasn't God's plan. And God showed up and said, this isn't the plan. So we gotta be careful as we move forward, right? Abram thought this was a good idea, but it wasn't how God was gonna provide the child of promise. Here's the point. When we are not certain of God's will in a specific situation, we need to be humble and prayerful and seek wise counsel and be patient. Because too often we get ourselves into trouble because we just know we have the right idea or we just know what the right thing to do is. You ever been there before? All of us in this room have been there before. Now that said, so much of God's will is plain in scripture. So much of God's plan for your life is clear in scripture. We know that we are to pursue holiness, amen? We know it. We know we are to love others. We know we are to exercise spiritual gifts. We know we are called to speak and to live the gospel. So let me ask you, what steps are you taking right now to pursue God's plan for your life? If we know those things, what steps are you taking right now to pursue God's plan for your life? Are you walking closely with the Spirit? Are you regularly meditating on God's word and seeking him in prayer? Are you saying no to the lusts of the flesh? And are you, as the author of Hebrews would say, laying aside every weight and sin which so, eagle, uh, so, so easily clings to us? Are you putting safeguards in place to guard your purity? Are you confessing sin and walking in righteousness? Are you willing to humble yourself? Are you willing to listen to the counsels of others? Or are you just so sure of yourself that you think you know the way in every situation? Friends, are you loving others? Are you helping to meet physical and spiritual needs? Are you making yourself available to serve in the church family as God calls us to do? Are you willing to support the ministries of the church which God calls us to do? Are you praying for gospel opportunities? Are you looking for gospel opportunities? Are you developing relationships with others so that you might engage others with the gospel of Jesus Christ? I mean, here's a question. When is the last time you've had a real gospel conversation with someone who you knew not to be a follower of Jesus Christ? That will tell us what steps we're taking or maybe what steps we need to take to pursue God's plan in our lives. Look, this is just a balanced Christian life. 
I mean, in a holiness, friends, that doesn't lead to love and to the engagement of others is not a God-centered holiness. Genuine holiness is not self-righteous. Genuine holiness leads us to love others. It leads us to minister to others. It leads us to engage others. And yes, it leads us to say no to sin, but it also leads us to say yes to love, to love others. So let's pursue God's plan. Finally, casual interest in Jesus is deadly. Casual interest in Jesus is deadly. Let's read, let's pick up here in verse 13. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king, that's Agrippa the second, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answer then that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in this case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with their own, about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to, the, to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. On the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So some days pass now, and and. And some new characters in our study of Acts are now there. King Agrippa, Agrippa II, and a lady named Bernice, who is actually his sister. Now, King Agrippa was part Jewish. He was the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who ruled Israel during the time of Jesus' birth. And he was the son of Herod Agrippa I, whose death is recorded for us in Acts chapter 12. This King Agrippa ruled over the northern area of Palestine, but Rome had given him some jurisdiction in Jerusalem and specifically even over the temple where he had a say in who would be appointed as the next high priest of the Jews. And if it seems odd to you that King Agrippa was with his a lady named Bernice, who is his sister, it should seem odd to you. They were involved in an immoral and an incestuous relationship. So much so that an emperor, the emperor had commanded that Bernice be married to another person, but after a few, uh, a short while, 
Bernice left the person she was ordered to marry and then moved back in with her brother, King Agrippa II. So as we read here, Festus is really just saying, this is what happened. This is who Paul is, and this is how he got here, and I've seen him, I've tried him, I didn't find anything worthy of death, but ultimately he appealed to Caesar, so now here we are, I gotta send him to Caesar, but I don't even know what to say. I don't even know what to tell the emperor, because what am I gonna say? He hasn't done anything worthy of death. In the midst of all of this, Agrippa, who was very aware of the affairs of the Jews, speaks up and says, I would like to hear this man. The text really is saying, I had been wanting to hear this man, as if Grippa was really interested in the story, really interested in what was happening. And of course, it wasn't just Paul. It was actually more about probably who Paul was following, more about Jesus. Now, as I said previous, Agrippa was part Jewish. Commentator Daryl Bach again describes King Agrippa as being a very pious person, very pious in religious matters and an expert in Jewish issues. So let me just state the obvious here. Piety in religious matters does not mean godliness, okay? Someone can be very religious but not be a godly person. And this is what we see here with King Agrippa. And because he was an expert in Jewish issues, he would have understand the conflict that was raging and that would have explained why he actually wanted to hear from Paul himself. But the question is, what kind of interest did Agrippa have in Paul. What kind of interest was it? Well, I think there's a foreshadowing in verse 23, right? The, the whole pomp and circumstance with which Agrippa and Bernice entered the area. The self-centered, arrogant king was on display. He clearly thought a lot of himself as he entered into Caesarea, into the, into the area where the trial was taking place, and he was bringing attention to himself. I want you to flip over to chapter 26, not to take anything from next week's sermon as Tim is going to be preaching as I'll be out of town next weekend with Jackson on a trip. I want you to listen to how this plays out, verse 25. And as he was saying these things in his defense, that's the Apostle Paul, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. So Paul, verse 20, chapter 26, is making his defense before Agrippa. And Kind of coming to the end of that, he kind of challenges him. Agrippa, you're a, a religious man. You know the affairs of the Jews. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. In other words, all the prophets are saying, this is the Messiah, this one Jesus. Do you believe? And then his response is, Paul, do you think in such a short time you would persuade me to be a Christian? What kind of interest was it? I submit to you it was a casual interest. 
You know, he just wanted to learn more, wanted to see more, wanted to have a, a fuller understanding of what was going on here. But there's no indication that Agrippa ever repented of his sin and put his trust in Christ. He was pious. He was devout in religious matters, yet he died in his sin. His casual interest did not lead to faith in Christ. And friends, this is a warning for us. This is a warning. There are many people who are pious, even devoutly religious, but who do not know Jesus, who have not surrendered their lives to Jesus, who have not recognized their own sin and put their hope only in the finished work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. And it could look good on the outside, right? Most religious people look pretty good on the outside, like the Pharisees, clean on the outside, but on the inside, full of dead man's bones. Apart from faith in Jesus, we are still dead in our trespass and sin. And we will suffer eternally for our rebellion against the one true and living God. Friends, a casual interest in Jesus does not save anyone. So let's pursue him with all that we are. The Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, I want to end with this. I want you to hear how he's calling us to lean into Jesus. How he's calling us to prove that our faith is not merely casual, that our interest in Jesus is not merely casual. He writes, his divine power has granted us, granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, lean in to Jesus. Don't be satisfied with a mere casual interest. Run after him with all that you are. Will you pray with me? Lord, we're grateful for your grace and your kindness in giving us your word. We're grateful that you give us examples that we should follow and we, we're grateful that you give us truth that must be believed. Mostly we're thankful for Jesus Christ, the one who Paul stood on trial on behalf of and for, the one who Paul spoke of that forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with you and the hope of eternal life comes through faith in the God-man, the one who took on flesh, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death on the cross, and rose again on the third day.
in this room, Lord, I pray that we would hear that truth and that we'd respond to it. I pray that we would live vigilantly and fully for you, recognizing there is an enemy, but pursuing your plan in our lives. God, work in us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Church, as we transition to a time of invitation, there may be some of you who have questions about what it means to follow Christ and have the hope of eternal life. If that's you, come now or at the end of the service, you'll find me or one of our staff members out in the hallway, or maybe you're with someone you know to be a follower of Christ. You can talk to them. You can ask them about the questions that uh, you have about the gospel and what it means to be a follower of Christ. There may be some in this room who are ready to be baptized, and if you'll come, we'd love to celebrate with you in that. There may be others in this room who want to join this church. You've been through the process, or maybe you just want prayer. We'd love to pray with you. Of course, you're always free to pray right where you are. Come up here and pray at the, at the stage as you seek the Lord. Uh, I believe that God is at work in this room right now, and I believe that he's at work in individuals specifically in this room right now. So the question is, what is God doing in your life? And how will you respond to it? Would you stand as we sing together?